I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Steve Jeffries. Yogi Polywell. And so this week, we're talking about, I guess, not one of the more prominent billionaires. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a guy you probably haven't heard of. Maybe if you're uh, in the Denver, Colorado area, sure. you might have heard about him as a man about town. But we're talking about a billionaire named Gary Magnus. Y- you might know his uh, uh, famous uh, pop singer daughter, Cameron with a Y, C-A-M-R-Y-N. You know, that's how you spell Cameron. Yeah, so maybe the people would want to hear some of that. Uh, he So this is a Colorado billionaire worth $1.4 billion, according to Forbes, as of November 2019. Mm-hmm. And he does have a pop singer daughter. That's right. Uh, and she sings about being lonely, I understand. Well, her, her s- single, if you can call it a single, is Lovesick. Here, here's a little taste for you. Man, all you have to do is have a billionaire father, and you can produce a music video that shows how you're not that popular, but you're so lonely because you're not that popular. So this is like 100,000 views, right? Yeah, I mean, she's got Just like... all from a click farm in Malaysia. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, you know... It's, if, you play it, if you play it backwards, it's like all satanic verses in <laughs> Illuminati <laughs> language. Yeah, well, actually, and so, as actually Steve brings it up, you know, Illuminati, mm-hmm. like... Why I got interested in this guy, Gary Magnus, this kind of obscure Colorado billionaire, is we did this three-part episode on the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Yeah, which, it nearly killed us. Yeah. Just to recap briefly, uh, uh, this bank that's linked to the CIA, Saudi intelligence, the Mossad, everybody, uh, as well as you know international terrorism and drug trafficking, it right. collapses in 1991, about $15 billion or so dollars go missing. And then it's just kind of a strange story where, you know, the claims to get people trying to get their money back are ongoing. But the scandal itself, even though so many different politicians and other people, like we said, the CIA, are Mm -hmm. involved in it, the scandal itself really disappears after 1992. And one of the lingering questions from BCCI is, well, where did all that money go? Right. And there's a weird story in the 1980s about a company called Capcom Financial. And if you thought it's hard doing research on BCCI, just try Googling Capcom uh, and trying to find out about a bank scandal instead of the new Street Fighter game. Like, yeah. No, the Capcom financial statements just said Hydoken again and again. It's just like, these are just move combos. Right. But but it is like, I mean, there is a part of me that almost thinks like, well, maybe the fucking CIA pushed the Capcom video game franchises in order to get this out of the press. I mean, a lot of video game companies go under pretty often. So the fact that Capcom has made it as long as they did, it is kind of shocking. Right. But so Capcom Financial is set up by BCCI in 1984. Um, it goes under with the rest of BCCI. But 
what it's doing is it's kind of a commodities trading arm of BCCI, a uh, commodities affiliate. It's being used for money laundering. It's a giant fraud factory. But what's interesting is that from 1984 to 1988, Gary Magnus, this is the current billionaire we're talking about, his father, a guy named Bob Magnus, was one of the principal shareholders and sat on the board of directors of Capcom Financial right. from 1984 to 1988. And he made millions of dollars doing this uh, that that we know of. I'm sure he even made more. But he's never really investigated, never prosecuted, and nothing happens to him. So, again, this is one of the greatest financial banking scandals of all time. And this guy just gets to uh, walk away with the money. And they were part of canceling the most anticipated project, Mega Man Legends 3. <laughs> shutting down Clover Studios in 2015. So, you know. My research was a little, little off, guys. I, mm -hmm. I didn't realize we were doing Capcom Financial. My apologies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got a whole bunch of Devil May Cry research that I don't know what to do with anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the CIA uh, fucked up the Devil May Cry games to, <laughs> to take people off the trail of the real Capcom right, scandal. Right, right. The true devil. Yeah. But so, you know, and the Bob Magnus fortune, the Bob and Gary Magnus fortune... Uh, Bob Magnus is dead now. The son, Gary uh, Magnus, he became worth $1.4 billion because he inherited this cable television and internet fortune. Right. Um, uh, Bob Magnus was originally just cable television, yeah. but uh, he founded this company called Telecommunications Incorporated. Um, Telecommunications Incorporated in 1999 was bought by AT&T, and mm -hmm. since then, their cable lines have all been sold off to Comcast. So... It is uh, something interesting where we'll kind of talk a little bit about the history of Bob Magnus, but cable is a natural monopoly. It's just you spend the money, you put the lines down, and then uh, nobody else can really compete with you if you own the fucking lines. It has very high barriers to entry, so it takes a lot of money to, line, to lay down the cable and all the infrastructure. And once you do, I mean, there's, I mean, there's only really a need for, for one. Right, you put down one line, and yeah. then it can take care of as so many people. Meant, yeah, that's what's meant by natural monopoly. And he stuck to Bob Magnus. He kind of began his career staying rural mm -hmm. and like just monopolizing in this way through rural communities and using quite a bit of credit to do it. So he'd like grow very quickly right, right. into a large company doing that. Yeah, and it's interesting where... Um, Another thing with the BCCI scandal is around the time the BCCI scandal breaks, 1991, um, there's no MSNBC, there's no Fox News yet. There's CNN. Right. Just so happens uh, TCI around this time owns a little more than 20% of Turner Broadcasting, which owns hmm. CNN. So, I mean, you can see why... Uh, they weren't reporting on something that hurt their own bottom line. Right. And it is interesting. So another thing is uh, uh, the premium side, we're going to talk about John C. Malone because that kind of continues this. And we'll go a little more into detail on the cable industry on the John C. Malone episode. He's a, a cable billionaire. This guy from Die Hard? Yeah, he just happens to be the largest landowner in the United States. But John C. Malone was the guy that uh, Bob Magnus appointed as CEO of TCI in 1972. He went on to become a billionaire and he runs uh, Liberty Media now. Um, yeah, without John C. Malone, I don't think TCI becomes the billion, the valuated billion co dollar company that it becomes. Mm -hmm. No, John C. Malone certainly is the uh, is the Paul Allen in terms of uh, working hard and diligently figuring out the vision for TCI to get out of the rural upbringings that Bob Magnus uh, originally uh, mm -hmm. laid the foundation for. Well, when we were when we were researching TCI and Bob Magnus, like prior to Malone joining. Mm -hmm. 
um, there's a lot less information about TCI, right? And it seems that they were just mostly focused with their with um, just monopolizing the cable markets in these really rural and some suburban areas, and they hadn't really diversified at all at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah, and so I guess just to say, we'll we'll start with the biography of Bob Magnus, the father. But uh, we should just mention again, Gary Magnus, born in um, uh, 1954 in Texas. Uh, he attends Western State College of Colorado, but drops out. Mm. And apparently, his brother split their dad, Bob Magnus's fortune, but he died of an apparent overdose. Hmm. I wonder who supplied those yeah. drugs. Yeah, <laughs> Kim Magnus. Yeah. I wonder what he college died. dropout supplied these drugs that killed his brother, <laughs> incidentally. <laughs> he died, uh, I looked up the autopsy re- report for Kim Magnus. He died in, I think it was 2003. Um, he had been kind of battling a, a cocaine addiction off and on. Hmm. And the autopsy showed that he had like a, a really damaged, if not ruptured, spleen. Right, and it is just... Inter- and like that's... Like, he had been dealing with, I think, uh, cancer. He had a lot of health problems. But also, he had, like, bruised ribs and also this, like, damaged spleen. And really? Stuff. So there so is, like, a controversy on how he might may have died? It, they didn't really reach a conclusive result. Huh. Because there are so many different confounding factors. And he did have a history of overdosing on uh, drugs. So What year was this? 2003. Oh, interesting. A year later, Capcom releases Monster Hunter. <laughs> and let's be honest here. It is no coincidence. And uh, Oh, yeah. He did vehemently oppose the release of Monster Hunter. <laughs> I just like at the bottom of the autopsy, there's a there's a little text and it's all underlined and it says, this has nothing to do with living under cable lines his entire life. None of the health problems are related to TCI's cable lines. Um, but we should mention, according to this Forbes profile of Gary Magnus, um, his wife, uh, Sarah Magnus, runs the com- the couple's film company, Smokewood Entertainment, That's right. uh, which has produced, uh, I guess, four or five movies, uh, none of which you've heard of except for Precious. Moody. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> except for the movie Precious. He won an Oscar, Gary Magnus did, as the uh, producer of the movie Precious. Right. They also produced Moody Judy, that classic mm-hmm. uh and uh, other terrible movies no one's ever going to fucking see. And also, Sarah is uh, the type of individual to hawk something called gold collagen. This is a commercial for it uh, featuring Sarah Siegel Magnus, the wife of Gary. One of the most immediate benefits that I saw after I started drinking the gold collagen was how hydrated my skin was. My fine lines started to soften. I looked younger, and I thought, you know, this product would take maybe two, three months to start working, but really, after two weeks, I was glowing. All my friends and family were asking me what I did there, and I said, well, actually, I discovered a beauty drink, gold collagen, that changed my life. It's anti-aging in a sip. (laughs) <laughs> During it's, those statements at drinking. the bottom, it says uh, not approved by the FDA. I just, I just like how she's drinking collagen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so pathetic when like somebody has more money than they'd ever need, able be able to spend in one lifetime, and then they're bored and like, what should I do? I should sell some things. Yeah, right. If I can uh, sell some things and make more money, like you have enough money to just give this garbage away. Well, just say, go to my website. I will send mm-hmm, you gold mm-hmm. collagen for free. And it's like, 
you know, gold and rich people and it them believing it causes an anti-aging effect is not new. Like uh, when we did the episode on Adam Newman, we discussed how uh, uh, the Paltrow company Goop has like a fucking gold like eyeliner thing like you just rub gold on your face and it's like yo how how much are we gonna fetishize fucking wealth with fucking looking good because it's like you know hey if you want to if you want to live longer eat diamonds like it doesn't make any fucking sense (laughs) and so it should also be mentioned well first of all uh gary magnus son of a billionaire college dropout Mm -hmm. kim magnus son of a billionaire heroin addict and like all due respect, like, that is what I would do if I was the son of a billionaire. Heroin addict? Yeah, and college dropout. Because like, <laughs> you read that and you think, oh, it's pathetic, you dropped out of college, but then you think, why are all these other billionaire kids even bothering yeah, to go to college? Well, yeah, either either you get in with the Epstein crowd, or you stay on the <laughs> periphery and, like, race monster trucks and get a heroin addict uh, addiction, like uh, Kim. Kim and Gary, to a yeah, lesser extent. It is interesting. They they do all seem to like they, there's um John Cleese's daughter, uh, it's a stand up now, and I was watching an interview with her, and she used to be an equestrian, right? Mm. And she literally in, in the interview was like, Yeah, it's an odd group of billionaires that seem to be a part of the equestrian horse club. And it's like this is why they they don't finish school sometimes, because they're too busy riding horses and shit. And it's like Motherfucker, you got a car. You don't need to be doing this shit. Well, we should do a cultural mapping of billionaires at some point because there's like there's a like there's horse ones mm-hmm. and there's distinctively not horse ones. Yeah, they, so there we've covered non-horse billionaires. Before. I don't know which billionaire it was, but um, it was a billionaire that the the kids were fighting over the estate, and one of the things was that the the billionaire that we were talking about, I can't remember who it was, but the the big part of it was a horse stable that had like these rare horses, but none of the kids got into horse riding, so they just kind of sold off all the horses at a loss. Was that, um, Packer? I think it was Packer. Yeah, I think yeah. you could be right about that. And like, that's so funny to me that <laughs> this fucking billionaire is so obsessed with horses, and his kids like, Nah, Dad, we good. <laughs> we don't need horses in our lives, and fucking just get rid of them. That was Kerry Packer, wasn't it? It was Kerry Packer. Yeah. But so one other thing uh, Gary Magnus got from his father is uh, involvement in financial fraud schemes. <laughs> um, you might have heard of this guy, Robert Allen San- Stanford. He got he kind of got overshadowed by Bernie Madoff, but he was also running a giant Ponzi scheme that collapsed into the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, it was about a $7 billion Ponzi scheme. And actually, John Stewart at The Daily Show, uh, they did this great segment where they made fun of CNBC. Mm-hmm. This is before the Ponzi scheme collapsed, actually, where C- a CNBC guy interviewed him and said, uh, so what's it like being a billionaire? <laughs> Just like that kind of hard-hitting question, right, of course. which looks even worse when you realize <laughs> after the fact that he's running a fucking Ponzi yeah. scheme. Yeah. Why are you so great? <laughs> <laughs> But so, uh, according to this Bloomberg Law article from August 2019, um, uh, Gary Magnus, quote-unquote, borrowed $79 million from Stanford from this Ponzi scheme. He borrowed $79 million. Uh, even, so why do you say borrow like a uh, Canadian? Yeah, I don't, yeah. Borrowed. 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 Saying, yeah. uh, donkey in Spanish? What's going on here? <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> So, but he knew he conceded. Gary Magnus did that it was a fraudulent transfer. Mm-hmm. Like he knew this was a Ponzi scheme, but um, but it's it's very weird. Where like apparently the way the law works is that he's able, or Gary Magnus has been fighting to not have to give back this eighty million dollars oh, for really? ten years now. What? 
and this guy's worth 1.4 billion. He made uh he got 80 million on a fake loan from a Ponzi scheme and he's been fighting for 10 years. Uh as of August 2019, they're appealing it to the um Texas State Supreme Court. There's 18,000 victims of this Ponzi scheme mm-hmm. and um the receiver, the person trying to get the uh, the victims their money back, right. has you know sued Gary Magnus. Again, this litigation's been ongoing for ten years. Um, they're headed. To, uh, he says the receiver does that. Only about two percent of the claims, about one hundred and thirty five million dollars, have been returned. Hmm. So for. 10 fucking years, yeah. Gary Magnus is like not just going, hey, okay, here's that 80 million right, back, right. you know, because he needs it to sell his uh, wife's drinkable collagen. <laughs> <laughs> but so according to this Bloomberg Law article, um, the... The, the way Texas law works, there's a Texas Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act, mm-hmm. um, and they're appealing to the Supreme Court to ask if this act allows Gary Magnus to keep the money, the $80 million, if he can show, as he has argued, it would have been futile for him to investigate whether Stanford was operating a Ponzi scheme. Because for some reason, Gary Magnus has said that he took this $80 million loan, he suspected it, and he admits now that it was a fraudulent transfer, but he says it would have been pointless for him to investigate whether or not it was a Ponzi scheme because it would have done nothing. What? And for some reason, there was an appeals court that said, yeah, that argument holds up. You can keep the $80 million. <laughs> So now they're appealing to the Texas State Supreme Court. But it's like, regardless of the law, which seems very strange to me, that if you can say, yeah, I suspected it was a Ponzi, but I thought it would be pointless to yeah, investigate right. that this guy was just giving me $80 million. If you can say that... Uh, whether or not the law is clear about that, you're worth 1.4 billion, and there's like 18,000, you know, middle class or small mom and pop depositors who are just got fucking hosed, and you're not just giving back this 80 million because your fucking you, daughter needs to produce a new yeah, music right. video. How much did it cost to make Precious? I don't know. Let's look this shit up real quick. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, his daughter's song is about how it's you know so lonely when you're trying to avoid the creditors. <laughs> Yo, it the cost 18,000 people who lost their It cost 10 li- million dollars to make Precious. He could have made fucking eight Preciouses with this goddamn money. Yeah. Man, motherfuckers. <laughs> Precious 2. We- <laughs> 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 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> but again, it's a family tradition because Robert Allen Stanford, the uh, Ponzi guy, he's doing a life sentence for the Ponzi scheme. But mm-hmm. Gary Magnus, you know, Scott Free, um, and has fought the receivership. Precious 2 in it to win it. <laughs> 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 but um, but I guess we should kind of back up here a little bit. Um, I want to talk a, a fair bit about Capcom Financial and its links to BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. But um, And then on the Patreon episode, we're going to talk about John C. Malone and a bit more about the cable industry in general in the United States. Um, but I, I think we should just kind of start with the story of Bob Magnus, the father, the, the man who gave Gary Magnus the money to soup up his daughter's music videos right, right. Um, and how he did that. There's actually a video from the Colorado Business Hall of Fame, which we'll play maybe two minutes of to just kind of give you the, uh, the uh, nuts and bolts introduction. The story of Bob Magnus began modestly enough in 1924 in the small town of Clinton, Oklahoma. He grew to love cattle and horses and ranching with his wife, Betsy. But it wasn't enough. And he went into a store to buy a sport coat. And he couldn't afford the sport coat. I mean, his wife said, Betsy said, you know, go ahead and get the sport coat. And he said it was like a month's worth of groceries is how much the sport coat cost. So he made up his mind that he was going to be successful enough in business 
that he could buy any sport coat that he wanted. Bob Magnus's <laughs> widow, Sharon, knows these stories well, although she herself wouldn't hear them until years later. She laughs about him picking up two hitchhikers who would show him the future. They were talking about this new fangled way to put cable up and people in rural areas could get TV. Magnus was intrigued. He and his first wife, Betsy, sold their cattle, borrowed $5,000 from his father, and called the hitchhikers. They put their first cable system up in Memphis, Texas, 1956, and sold it for $300,000 like a year later. Sport coats came easy then, but Bob Magnus wasn't done yet. <laughs> All right, so that's his poverty story, is that he wanted to buy sports yeah, coats. I'm not going to stop growing this cable company until I can buy every damn sport coat <laughs> in this town. It's like the the Tony Montana origin story where you you just need sports coats so much that suddenly you're in bed with Saudi intelligence <laughs> and doing a fucking CIA front to yeah. defraud uh, investors of billions. Yo, how come billionaire stories involve hitchhikers so much? Is yeah. that the reason why there's not that many no. hitchhikers anymore? They shut it down because they didn't. The, the power of hitchhikers made people billionaires too often. I was just thinking, it's so sad they didn't pick up the Manson family. <laughs> <laughs> like why they have to get the lame hitchhikers? Right, right. I so like I read in some reports that it wasn't hitchhikers, but it was just two people he met somewhere that right. were talking about it. So like, even the the fucking fable is is not clear. So he got in today's dollars, he got about forty eight thousand from his dad. Jesus right. Christ! Well, that's what I was saying. So he had a herd of cattle to begin with, right. which is like you're already doing fine. And then he got a forty eight thousand dollar loan from his dad. Uh, but the poverty story is like he just le- wanted really bitchin' sports coats. <laughs> yeah, he started out wanting sports coats, and then, and then, um, forty thirty five years later, he's in the middle of Iran Contra. Yeah, people don't realize sports coats are the entryway into being Iran Contra <laughs> solvent. So the widow was like trying to tell the story about the sports coat to make him relatable, but what she didn't tell you is the sports coats that he liked were made out of baby skin. <laughs> they cost a million dollars each to get a baby skin sports coat. Uh, baby leather. <laughs> Why has it got to be babies? Yeah. Well, listen, you don't understand. Human skin just doesn't feel right against wool. <laughs> but it is like, I mean, again, he has this supposed poverty story, but the actual story, even the way he tells it, is he meets two hitchhikers who they have the idea and he has the money. Right. He is the money guy yeah. who, you know, I mean, this is the way capitalism works. Well, I but- mean, it, it is sad that greatness is often, I heard these people have a good idea, but they're too broke or disorganized to get it done, so we could do it ourselves, Pop. We could, like, organize... 33% of the episodes by just, yeah, this guy met some poor person who had a good idea right, and right. he wasn't poor, so now he's a billionaire. Not only does this guy rich and makes money off their poor idea, but then later on, another rich dude is the reason why the company gets to where it is anyway. Yeah. So he doesn't even improve on the idea that he steals from these two hitchhikers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think later in the video, it says uh, that the, he, in 1956, he goes into business with these hitchhikers. And I believe within two years, they put up these cable lines and they actually sell them within two years for something like $300,000 in oh, the wow. 1950s. Yeah. So just really quickly within uh, setting this up, he's already rich. And, you know, Gary Magnus, his kid, is born 1954. By the time he's four years old, mm-hmm. he's rich. Yeah. So he's selling... Like rural community antenna systems, like really 
big ones. Right. I mean, the reason... To, like, pro- you know, power many, many miles. In yeah. the regions, I believe, is Montana, the Denver, Oklahoma, and Texas regions yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that he was setting up cable lines for them. And you have to understand, cable at this time is, you know, like fucking what internet is today. It's fucking, you know, 50s. I can watch TV and be in the woods. Like, yeah, yeah. it's a fucking, you know, goldmine of an operation. Yeah. And, and like we were mentioning earlier, once you put down the cable lines, you just get the money hand over fist. So once he had fully built out the infrastructure in Bozeman... Mm-hmm. He was bringing cable to about six, sorry, twelve thousand homes. Right, and now, now I've done a shitload for the time. Yeah, and I, I've done. I, I did stand up in Montana at one point, and like if you drive through it, there's parts of that drive where you don't even get the radio station. So right. the fact that there were places in the fifties getting television must have fucking blew their mind. Let alone cable television. Right. Yeah. Um, but so here's something from the uh, Cable Hall of Fame in 1998, another uh, Bob Magnus biography. They built their first cable system in Memphis, Texas, with 750 subscribers. Bob strung the wires while Betsy ran sales and marketing from the kitchen table. Within two years, they had more than quadrupled the business. Yeah, and so within two years, they quadrupled the business. They sell it. The number I heard was about $300,000 mm-hmm. in like 1957 or 58, uh, which again, a lot of money in the 1950s. How much was that, Steve? No, look at it. But uh, it helps. Because it could be a million dollars probably, yeah. right? Uh, but so then he uses that money of selling his first business uh, to start TCI, Telecommunications Incorporated. It wasn't originally called that. Mm. Uh, he starts the precursor to it in 1958 in Montana, uh, and then he moves it to Denver, Colorado, after merging it with another company right. in 1968, uh, changes the name to... When did he sell the company? Uh, 1958. He sells the first company. The 19- first one, yeah. Yeah, yeah 1958. About 300000 yeah. And then he starts the next one in um, Denver, Colorado, or sorry, in Montana. About nin- about two and a half million. What? Pretty nice. good. In today's dollars. Yeah. So he starts the next one um, in Montana in 1958, uh, merges it, moves it to Denver 1968, right. where he renames it Telecommunications Inc. or TCI. Um, TCI goes public 1970, and then in 1972, it has about 100,000 subscribers. It's a public company now, but he thinks he needs a more experienced hand, so he hires future billionaire John C. Malone, who'll be the subject of the next episode, to be CEO. John C. Malone grows it to the point where, in 1981, TCI is the largest cable company in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Like all cable, because it is a natural monopoly, you can find, if you look uh, from the 90s and 80s, lots of people complaining about how much TCI <laughs> sucks. Really? Even then? Yeah. Because, I mean, like, the cable industry has only gotten more consolidated, but, yeah, you know, say you're in rural Montana and TCI is the one bringing you cable, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I'm sure you're grateful, but it's also, like, they can just say, no, nah, we're not going to fix this. You have no option here. Right, we, right. We'll, we'll get to this next week. Yeah, we don't have to give a fuck. Right. It's like dealing with Spectrum today. Like, did, I had to return my modem to Spectrum. They made me wait an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> just to give them the fucking modem. What pieces of shit. You yeah. want to know what happened to me? <laughs> yeah. So when I moved to New York, I had uh, Time Warner, now Spectrum, and uh, my my internet didn't work that well. So I, I decided to use my own modem, and so the technician took it themselves, right? So this was, this was five years ago that this shit happened. Um. Three months ago, last August, they sent a letter to my parents' place saying that I owed them $80 for the modem I didn't return. <laughs> and I was like, well, I gave it to the technician. So I went to Spectrum, 
and I told him about it, and she's and so they sent it to collections because I because they, they were like you haven't paid us in five years. I'm like, how the fuck can I not pay you for something that I don't owe you? Right. No, it is something where I feel like cable companies in the United States just get off on the power they have yeah. over you. <laughs> they want to gouge you. Fuck everyone. Everything you everyone, got. right down to the call center employees, just like yeah, fuck you. <laughs> I have everything. You have nothing. <laughs> I will say, like, I went into the Spectrum location personally because yeah. I was tired of calling them, and like, I rolled in and I was like fucking heated, and the lady was like, "Have you signed in?" And I was like, "No." And you have to fucking sign it on a yeah, tablet yeah, yeah. and then sit and wait. And Sean and I would wait for an hour. I had to wait for like twenty minutes. But I have to say that entire process has saved plenty of murders. <laughs> Cause I would, if I rolled in and they would have been like, "We can't do shit for you," I'd be like, well, "Who do we gotta punch to get shit done around here?" I just moved, so like now I have different internet options. But, what you got? Uh, I got RCN now. <laughs> um, they're like actually, well, I, look, I have it. I've only had them less than a month. Sure. I don't know if they suck yet. But when I had Spectrum, I was in a building literally only Spectrum. Right. So I'd come home from work, and the internet wouldn't work, and I would just be there like, okay, so I can wait on hold with Spectrum for two hours. Right. Um. And if I don't like it, well, there's literally no other yeah, option. Right. So I could I could call Spectrum and say I'm gonna live without internet unless you fix this. You know what you actually can do if you call them and your internet's out and they say it's out for whatever reason. Yeah. You and you literally you have to go through like eight different. I I got very good at fighting Time Warner and yeah. it got to a point where I'd call them because sometimes they do maintenance at like two in the morning and every now and then we would upload episodes at that time. So I'd call them and be like, "Motherfucker, I gotta work," and they would be like, "Sorry, we're doing maintenance," which is their go-to bullshit. And I'd be like, "Well." I'm paying you for this to work and it's not working. So I would like some of my money back and they'd be like, all right, we're going to take off 40 bucks off your bill this month or whatever. So you can call them and say, you suck. I need money. And they'll go, legally speaking, you're not wrong. (laughs) Like you do have actually a lot of leeway in fighting out your your bill your cable bill right but it is over just, the phone but right. it would, i mean it's more have a hassle than most people are willing to mm-hmm. exactly it's just like consume your time until you get fucking bo- until you're like yo i got so good i remember it was like all right this is the phone number two four six two and i'm like i love tech three and they'd be like uh are you sure i'm like motherfucker i restarted i did everything i needed you send me tech three right now and the person would be like <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm in Cambodia. You're not gonna fight me, but I'll send this guy to Texas that's gonna help you out. I got so good at fighting Time Warner, man. I can't tell you how like hype that shit got me. The subscribers are like, "Why is the Grubstakers episode late again?" (laughs) Yogi's been on hold with Spectrum for two days now, but he has to win this. I'm telling you, man. One once they kept like hanging up on me, and I was like, "I'm going in too angry." So I put on like a Southern old lady voice (laughs) and pretended like I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, these fucking these Cambodian fucking tech workers that deal with the uh, customer service at four in the morning. They were like, this poor old white lady doesn't know what she's doing. Let's help her out. But I was like, I I just don't know what's going on. My (laughs) man, they they were they ate that shit up. So if you ever have issues with a tech company, pretend to be old and maybe female and not know what you're doing and certain doors open for you. Hmm. But um, so TCI by 1981, largest cable company in the United States. If you're um, bidding on eBay and you want to under underbuy for the price, send them an email saying that this is a gift for your significant other <laughs> and that they would really love it. But don't say you're the dude. No, say you're the woman because if it's a guy selling it, they'll be more sympathetic. And and there is no statistic on this, but I believe that eBay sellers are mostly dudes. Hmm. I've done this successfully and saved countless amount of dollars on things I didn't need. 
Yeah, my wife just really wants Devil May Cry 4 <laughs> Collector's Edition. It, it, listen, I'm not, I don't feel good about this shit, but the fact that I'm not sharing it with the world lets me know this that... This would be like... This would be a more... Mo- like a... Uh, Bob Magnus's story about like wanting sports jackets. Yeah. Like today, it would be like I just want to be able to pay a lower bill <laughs> right, right. on my yeah. on my cable. Right. And so if you stay on the line long enough, you just like you've entered the great game. Now. But that, that's and what they, it they is. They start up the ante. If you're on li- if you're on hold with them for fifteen to forty minutes, literally fifteen to forty minutes, they're gonna bend and go fuck it. We gotta give this guy money. He's not gonna quit. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, and so we'll we'll talk about John C. Malone and uh, TCI and the U.S. cable industry more uh, in depth on the on the next episode. But what you kind of need to know is John C. Malone is appointed CEO of TCI in 1972. By 1981, it's the biggest cable company in the United States. But what happens is Bob Magnus is kind of sidelined. You know, he hires this guy to run the thing because he doesn't know how to. Um, yeah, Bob Magnus doesn't really know how to run a big company, so he hires a guy to run the thing, and he's now he's just got his money, and he doesn't have much to do anymore. I was reading a there's a Financial Times interview with Malone speaking about Bob, mm-hmm. and just kind of how he got like like Bob was kind of his mentor, I guess, in business, even though he needed help on the technical aspects of actually running a cable business and mm. expanding it. But Malone was like uh, he. He learned a lot from Bog Magnus about what he says he calls bulkhead financing, hmm. which is apparently like a business strategy where you make sure all of your acquisitions can independently, internally finance themselves. So all of the entities that are owned by like TCI, right? Uh, they're all sort of siloed off as like independently they they're generating cash. Right, right. Cash they're flow. all their own. Separate entities yeah. making so money. they don't they don't require like big transfers of cash so like you can quote keep the banks uh, out of your business huh. basically if you need to right sure and he said of Bob Malone was the the article goes on it says Malone was known for his talent for deal making or media Darwinism as he calls it hmm. and he came and it say it came from learning on the job under Bob Magnus uh who hired Malone in 1972 and made him the chief executive a year later. Uh, He said, quote, most of the skills in financial engineering came from the school of hard knocks. Bob Magnus taught me that. He could read a balance sheet faster than anyone I've ever known and really developed the principle of bulkhead financing, which, like I said, is where you silo off the profitability of each of the the underlying entities. Yeah. So that you don't have to, like, go to banks for for, credit finance and stuff like that. Right, so John figured out how to look at a sheet and make it so that it could work on its own, essentially. Yeah, so, like, I don't know, Bob, it sounded like Bob kind of, like, had a head for just business generally, but he needed Malone to actually run this specific business about cable Hmm. and, like, expanding in media. Right, like, once you reach that kind of scale, because, you know, John C. Malone had uh, previous experience as the president of of Gerald Electronics, which was a cable equipment maker. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess he just had the experience running a larger company and also with the actual nuts and bolts of large-scale cable equipment. Um, and, you know, once you're just expanding beyond rural Montana and trying to go in, uh, what, New York, California, everywhere else. Right. Um, but so, you know, TCI is bought by AT&T in 1999. It's a $48 billion deal at the time, the largest in U.S. business history. 
And then AT&T sells TCI's existing cable networks, which are still fucking around, like yeah, uh, to Comcast. So if you have Comcast, you probably have They're the pieces. fucking thing <laughs> Bob Malone installed in 1957 <laughs> or uh, Bob Magnus. Um, but yes, yeah, so... Um, but I guess what I wanted to mention why it's important that uh, Bob Magnus... By yeah, we're not covering just a shitty cable billionaire for no real reason. Right. This is the shit that we want to talk about. Right. So why it's important that in um, nineteen uh, the 1980s, Bob Magnus is kind of you know bored, listless, he doesn't really have anything to do, is that he gets involved in Capcom Financial. And um, there's this article in New York Magazine from 1991 called Cable TV's BCCI Connection. And it goes through how uh, 1984 to 1988, Bob Magnus served as the founding shareholder and director of Capcom Financial, which is a uh, it's described in this article as a fraud factory, uh, a price, <laughs> a price Waterhouse Cooper audit. Best job. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Uh, a Price Waterhouse Cooper audit uh, named um, the uh, head of Capcom Financial as the quote ringleader in a scheme to use Capcom to loot at least 1.3 billion dollars of BCCI money. And um, damn, yeah. And so it, it's just interesting where. Oh, and I, I do just like that. According to um, this New York magazine, uh, they found uh, BCCI was also funneling, using their New York office to funnel money to the Gambino crime family. What? <laughs> yeah, they uh, they usually did it through loans on mobbed up construction projects. Mm-hmm. Like they, it was these um, these private investigators for United Consulting found this. Like that's what you know. Again, if you haven't listened to the BCCI episode, you don't have to invest all four hours right, that we spent right. on this. But um, what we you keep running into is. There's U.S. investigators seem to just kind of stop at a, at a different point mm-hmm. with this criminal conspiracy that is very clearly linked to Saudi intelligence and probably the CIA as well, um, where, you know, Saudi intelligence, the chief, uh, Kamal Adham, is a, a board member of BCCI. He's a board member of Capcom Financial. He's, you know, like front and center in all of these major schemes, and he's just never really pursued, and all these leads aren't really close. So it is these private investigators who find that BCCI was making these uh, loans to mobbed-up construction companies. In one case, they uh, say $16 million disappeared along with the company. It was a Pakistani-owned co- com- uh, construction company based in North Carolina. Oh, wow. Gets a $16 million loan, and then yeah. disappears and <laughs> ceases all operations so just that kind of shit going on again and again and there's just no real follow-up and no investigative conclusion i like how you 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 said that like bob was basically just kind of going around listless in the mid 80s he's like <laughs> all right fuck it let's do international money laundering <laughs> well you know his son got into a ponzi scheme too it's like in the dna right right you've got too much it's money like, yeah what's What's new in the air right now? Right, right. Oh, BCCI. Well, how's everyone else spending their time and money? Oh, this this bank that seems pretty cool. All right. Well, the peanut farmer likes it. That is true, though. If you were a billionaire and you like want to do the fucking uh, daredevil kind of thing, mm-hmm. what you could do is get involved in fraud and see if your legal team is good enough to pull yeah. you out of it. That's right. Like, <laughs> someone stop me. Right. I mean, all of this. You know, all of these billionaires have a certain amount of risk to reward ratio that they go ah fuck it let's do the risk who get they like to gamble and it's in their blood to think to themselves i can't lose so i might as well gamble right it's like the evil Knievel thing you know except instead of you know jumping a fucking cliff you're 
uh, <laughs> looting fifteen billion dollars <laughs> yeah. from small depositors, at Bangladeshi migrant workers, Actually, or whatever. I guess it's somewhat small stakes compared to. <laughs> <people>. <laughs> but um, and so you know, and again, we could spend a lot of time going through all of the different uh, scams Capcom Financial was involved in. But as as far as we can tell, it was set up as a commodities arm for BCCI and another way to kind of hide the losses of BCCI, and. The thing is, Bob Magnus would never really answer any questions about this. Um, he, he refused comment for all these articles. Uh, apparently, they would uh, they answered Senate questions with written answers and pleaded the fifth on all other stuff. Um, it, but the New York Magazine article speculates that in early 1981 and early 1982, or sorry, in 1981 and early 1982, Clark Clifford, who we talk about on the BCCI episode, uh, a former um, aide to Harry Truman and a major Democratic player who was uh, convicted in the BCCI uh, scandal as the guy who kind of brought BCCI into America. Right. He was on the board of a company called uh, Knight Ritter Incorporated, uh, K-N-I-G-H-T-R-I-D-D-E-R. Yeah, fans of Knight Rider, but yeah. not fans of spelling things correctly. <laughs> Uh, this was a Miami-based uh, company, and in uh, in this time, in 81-82, uh, the boards of Knight uh, Ritter and TCCI discussed merging certain cable operations. So the New York Mag speculates that in this through this merger discussion, Bob Magnus meets Clark Clifford, and Clark Clifford, of course, knows Kamal Odham and the other uh, leaders of BCCI. So the speculation is that from there, Bob Magnus meets all these Saudi intelligence guys. But so it's interesting where the Senate report, the Kerry Committee report in 1992, talks about uh, this uh, this audit that was done by Price Waterhouse in 1991. Notes there's an o- uh, the overlap of major shareholders between BCCI and Capcom Financial. It says Capcom's initial shareholders were dominated by major shareholders of BCCI, including A.R. Khalil, who is the Minister of Communications for Saudi Arabia and the Deputy Chief of Intelligence, and Kamal Adham, who was the, again, head of Saudi intelligence 1965 to 1979. So, and and there's, of course, other Saudis involved as well, but the head and the deputy head of Saudi intelligence, who also just happen to be multi-millionaire businessmen, because there's a major overlap in the Saudi government between these intelligence agencies and the uh, quote-unquote business community where if you're an American or whoever and you want to do business in Saudi, they have to be able to wet their beak. You know, This is how they become multi-millionaire businessmen. Mm-hmm. So these two companies that are, again, giant frauds just happen to be run by uh, the number one and number two people of Saudi intelligence who are also the CIA, the primary go-between between right, Saudi right. and the United States. It's uh, fucking nuts. The hotel in the middle of the desert with a ski slope inside of it. And you kind of go, this is, this is absolutely fucking stupid. Uh, absolutely fucking stupid. And so... Thanks, Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> but so... And, and so Larry Rumrell is uh, the... He was served as the vice president, a senior vice president of TCI... Uh, actually, today he works for John C. Malone's company, Liberty Media. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll talk about him a bit more in the next episode. But Larry Rumrell, as the senior VP, becomes Bob Magnus's kind of uh, gopher guy, his go-between. Sure. And uh, so, according to the uh, the Kerry Committee report, it is noteworthy that during the same years that the Saudi chief of intelligence Kamal Adham is entering America, the American banking industry through the purchase of First American, his successor in uh, Saudi intelligence, Mr. Khalil. 
uh, is quietly purchasing three house in, houses in the United States with the assistance of Americans Carrie Fox and Larry Rumrell, key players in Capcom. Mm-hmm. So in the early 80s, uh, th- there's an AP article that goes through this. In the early 80s, Larry Rumrell, again, senior vice president of TCI and Bob Magnus's uh, go-between, he starts uh, helping these uh, A.R. Khalil, is deputy chief of Saudi intelligence, briefly the chief of Saudi intelligence. Um, he he starts helping him buy some houses. Right. And they also start getting loans. It's, it's a weird story from this AP story. Between 1982 and 1986, uh, Larry Rumrell shared with the, uh, uh, the CEO of Capcom Financial eight proposals for U.S. investment opportunities between 1982 and 1986. Uh, he's trying to get money from Capcom Financial for mm-hmm. these investments. They ranged from California office property to the Houston Medical Center to a Denver laundromat called Duds and Suds. <laughs> uh, it was unclear from the documents if Akbar or his the CEO Akbar or his associates invested in any of these. Right. Um, and uh, they also... Uh, BCCI lent $2.1 million for a Steamboat Springs, Colorado condominium project in which Romrell, Larry Romrell, and Bob Magnus were investors. Um, Not to be confused with key players, uh, Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine of Resident <laughs> Evil from 1996, also Capcom players. Yeah, so Larry Romrell and Bob Magnus get this $2.1 million loan for a condo from BCCI in uh, 1984, and then they never have to pay it back. <laughs> They also get uh, a company they're in gets another one hundred eighty thousand dollar loan uh, from BCCI in Umbrella the 80s. Corp. Yeah, <laughs> for college and drinks. Right, right. That's how they get people to become zombies. Gold collagen straight into their lungs. And then, uh, according to the AP, uh, A.R. Khalil, again, deputy Saudi head of intelligence, he leases a condo duplex in Colorado that was built by Larry Rumrell. And uh, Carrie Fox in partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what the fuck is going on here? And it is interesting where, you know, this uh, the Carrie Committee report, uh, I read through it, and I, th- I think it's pretty fascinating where they kind of admit, like, they don't really know what happened here. Hmm, yeah. And this is like the only major government investigation that ever really took place of it. And if I can just quote from it, they say, well, the subcommittee has been able to piece together the history of Capcom Financial and can point to many unusual and even criminal acts committed by the firm. It still has not been able to determine satisfactorily the reason Capcom was created and the purpose it served for the various parties connected to the BCCI scandal. Um, and it, it appears from the available evidence that the CEO of Capcom, BCCI, and the South may have all pursued different goals through Capcom, including misappropriation of BCCI assets for personal enrichment, laundering of billions of dollars from the Middle East to the U.S. and other parts of the world, siphoning off assets from BCCI to create a safe haven for them outside of the official BCCI empire. Because that's the other great thing, is once you get it out of BCCI into Capcom, and then, you know, maybe even somewhere else from there, when BCCI goes under, you can hide it. Yeah, of course. Because, like, something we talked about on the BCCI episode is the BCCI uh, liquidator said they got back 75% of the assets. Well, I mean, I don't know how they calculate yeah, that, how, but how do you, yeah. very possible that it's like, oh, it just doesn't include all the shit we fucking <laughs> shifted to Capcom. Should we play the uh, praising Kamal Adham carry committee response? Yeah. Yeah. So this is like a drop about the head of Saudi intelligence from a, a frontline documentary. Raymond Close, former CIA station chief in Saudi Arabia, 
told Frontline of his great respect and admiration for Adam. Close added that he shares these feelings with many other present and former officials of the United States government. Jonathan Weiner is counsel to the Kerry Committee. Well, Kamal Adham's role in this affair and his background uh, are of great concern and importance. Here you have someone who was the right-hand man to King uh, Faisal of Saudi Arabia, the founder of modern Saudi Arabian intelligence. By public accounts, the CIA's principal liaison for the Central Intelligence Agency in the Arab world, a close friend of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, uh, who, according to press accounts, actually had Sadat on his payroll hmm. on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency when Sadat was vice president of Egypt. Adam's connections to Anwar Sadat would become invaluable to the Americans. All right, that's it. They talk about how um, Anwar Sadat, the Camp David Accords, uh, the peace agreement between um, uh, Egypt and Israel, right. uh, BCCI and Kamal Adham uh, probably played a significant role there. Uh, so it is interesting where some of the speculation is like maybe they let him wet his beak as thank you for the, all this. Right, of course. Or you know, maybe there was something even more sinister going on. But I just wanted to go through a little bit more of the, the Kerry Committee report. Uh, they talk about the CIA link, and they say, Turmoil in the Persian Gulf after the fall of the Shah of Iran in 1979 left a vacuum in the CIA's capability to, to, to gather information. The huge CIA operation in Iran was lost, including its most important listening stations to monitor the Soviet Union and China. With the revolutionary changes in technology that spawned the modern communication industry in the 1980s came the need for proper U.S. agencies to employ it and conversely for our allies to gain access to it. It was in this climate that the majority shareholders in BCCI approached U.S. executives in the communications industry to serve on the board of Capcom. The Americans, Larry Romrell, Bob Magnus, both of TCI and Kerry Fox of American T Telecommunications Company, had no knowledge or background in commodities trading and evidently were never involved in the management of the firm. So it is interesting where in this kind of, um, uh, uh, let's say, space where the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency needs to set up cable technology and, and other such stuff right. in Middle Eastern countries that are our allies, such as, you know, Saudi, UAE, Oman, and Kuwait, um, that these major telecom executives get approached for a no-work job on the board of a commodities company that is a, you know, obviously a major front for a multi-billion dollar scam, uh, and they get these no-work salaries out of it. And, you know, even like we said, the Kerry Committee itself does not have a satisfactory answer for this. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mm. Um, but it's fucking bullshit. Yeah. It's highway robbery. I mean, motherfuckers are straight stealing shit and they're going, ah, we don't know what really happened, but uh, we definitely did something that's wrong, but we own the fucking cable networks that would report on the crime so nobody knows what we're going to do and we're still going to remain in power for the next 20 years. I mean, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, and, and so I'll briefly go through the history of Capcom here. Uh, so BCCI's, the head of his of BCCI's Treasury Department was a Pakistani guy named uh, Zayadeen mm -hmm. Ali Akbar. 
Um, and it's kind of funny. The The Kerry Committee says in um, 1985, BCCI was already on the verge of collapse because this guy who had no experience came in and took over BCCI's treasury, apartment, uh, pr- treasury department. And he had accumulated within a year losses approaching $1 billion. <laughs> It's kind of like it's kind of funny. They kind of they go through this, and he says that um, he, he's like speculating in silver, mm-hmm. and he's paying a premium for trades that you would usually get at a discount because he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those cute little stories you run into in the financial industry. Yeah, um, a motherfucker doesn't know what he's doing, so he loses a boatload of money, but no one cares. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is again, like you said, it is weird where he loses BCCI a mil- a billion dollars, right? But he's promoted. No industry works like this. There's no industry where you lose a fucking. I've heard motherfuckers being fired for dropping do- dollars down drains. Like it, it doesn't make any sense that these people lose a billion dollars and are like, nah, this guy deserves to get more money now. And it's like when you've like got a bunch of like messy clothes and you just start shoving them in closets to right, like right. keep uh, them out yeah, of yeah, yeah. but then eventually the closets start overflowing so you're like I guess I got to get a storage unit <laughs> because what happens is they the, the the original plan to hide this 1 billion dollars of losses and it keeps increasing mm-hmm. is they set up um what are called quote number 2 accounts which are they just hide the the losses in the accounts of other uh, people who are major depositors there, including Kamal Adham, A.R. Khalil. But then, the, uh, according to the uh, Kerry Committee report, um, the uh, they recognized, the CEO and the head of treasury of BCCI, recognized that off-balance sheet accounting in the, quote, number two accounts could no longer adequately hide the massive losses. Accordingly, out-of-book or unrecorded deposits were moved, quote, out-of-bank to a new financial entity, Capcom Financial Services, LTD. But so, you know, they set up this off-book entity to hide their losses, Capcom Financial, 1984. It's based out of London, but because it's a commodity trading firm, supposedly, Mm -hmm. they have a seat on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And um, it's interesting where uh, it commences trading in London in uh, September 1984, and within a year... Uh, it becomes one of the largest uh, brokers in the entire world because all these BCCI orders are flowing through it. Um, and something the Kerry Committee talks about that I find pretty fascinating is what's called the volume scam, um, where the uh, commodities market can sustain an almost limitless volume uh just quoting from the report, a necessary prerequisite for a crime on the scale of that contemplated by BCCI, since fraudulent transactions may be hidden in a multitude of legitimate ones. In a letter to the directors, the chairman of Capcom, Larry Romrell, again, vice president of uh, TCCI, reported that $165 million in trading during the first four months of operations uh, and profits of $883,000. That trend continued until 1988, leading the CEO of Capcom, uh, Akbar, to boast, quote, we have contracted 165,000 contracts totaling $53 billion with Drexel Burnham Lampert. Uh, Drexel Burnham Lampard is the Michael Milken scam firm. (laughs) So it is interesting where you have two different Ponzi schemes inflating at once and helping (laughs) each other, just kind of like, you know, scratching each other's back with a volume. But, um, you know, they talk about this, how they use this massive volume of... um, of uh, what are called mirror trades. Game recognized game. Um, you know, they, they talk about this uh, this massive volume being used for what are called mirror trades, where 
they will hide money laundering. Like they go through the case where they launder about uh, $20 million for Panama's former dictator, Manuel Noriega, Mm -hmm. by bouncing it around a whole bunch and then setting up two different companies, both of which Akbar controls, the CEO of Capcom. He controls both companies, and then he just bounces the $20 back and forth a few times and makes it look like there was an actual payment where it was just, you know, money. Yeah. Yeah. They mask they mask those illicit trades and make it look like just normal sort of trading or uh, transfer activity. Mm-hmm. And so you know they they set up. Uh, it's originally in London. They set up a U.S. office. Um, the American board of directors mirrored that of London with Larry Romrell again, TCI vice president Bob right. Magnus's go-to, serving as the chairman of both boards. Um, and, and so, and also like Larry Romrell is writing the annual reports for these things. These guys have, you know, no commodities experience, but it is just kind of weird where Larry Rumrell is like up to this in his, you know, eyeballs, and mm-hmm. he's clearly working on behalf of Bob Magnus, but he's never pursued. And actually, the Kerry Committee has this quote that they are the first investigative body to even interview him. Really? And also the last of the U.S. government to interview huh. Larry Rumrell. Um And just again, quoting from the Kerry Committee uh, report from 1992, the subcommittee has concluded that with uh, the CEO Akbar at the helm, Capcom engaged in blackmail, bogus loans, quote, bucket shop trading, the use of nominee frontmen, artificial mirror image trades, commingling of funds, money laundering, theft, skimming of accounts, and kickbacks to insiders. And, And so, you know, like, they go through the various pr- business proposals we mentioned from 1982 to 85, 86. Uh, the Rumrell and Bob Magnus proposed um, ventures in communications to BCCI uh, prior to the formation of Capcom. The proposals included the installation of state-of-the-art electronics and communications in the Saudi Military Command Center. In 1982, Larry Rumrell expressed interest to Akbar in working with a BCCI and managing any interest they may have in our area. Um, and so, you know, Rumrell claims he didn't actually make any money on these ventures or he never took any money, but, you know, clearly they got a lot of never pay back loans. Sure, so sure. it's like, what the fuck? But uh, according to this, uh, the committee report, there is insufficient evidence to determine whether or not any of these proposals were consummated between the parties. The heavy traffic of proposals in 1983 to 1985 raises many serious questions about Larry Rumrell and Bob Magnus's involvement with BCCI. Moreover, documents suggest that during this period, BCCI credit was an important vehicle for Mr. Rumrell and Mr. Magnus in their personal affairs. Uh, documents provided to the subcommittee also indicate that BCCI may have been a shareholder in TCI, the largest cable company in the United States. Um, and they go through this because all T- uh, TCI, uh, they, they had a, uh, a company split off. Mm-hmm. They, uh, yeah, they, they spun off a company called WTCI, mm. and all TCCI, TCI shareholders got shares of WTCI. So they have letters from Larry Rumrell oh. uh, messaging, you know, the head of Capcom Financial and some BCCI people being like, hey, here's your uh, WTCI right, right. shares from the spinoff. But so, and, you know, and, and again, just to kind of keep going with the Kerry committee here, the uh, Larry Rumrell says that, uh, the, or sorry, the Kerry committee says they found a document Larry Rumrell wrote seeking a $200 million line of credit from BCCI for TCI. 
Um, he says, uh, quote, the TCI Finance Group, uh, he asked them, they are interested in obtaining a loan facility. I asked Bob Magnus. He asked me to determine whether there would be any interest on a lo- on the part of BCCI. I believe the credit facility that TCI is looking for is around $200 million as a separate matter. Um, the uh, subsidiary WTCI will soon be looking for approximately $15 million to construct a new microwave route. Uh, there may be an opportunity to put this deal together with BCCI if you are interested. So he's already writing, uh, Larry Rumrell is, asking for $250 million credit um, for uh, TCI. And so it's interesting where both Bob Rumrell, or Larry Rumrell and Bob Magnus are able to buy stock in Capcom, but the money, they each put in about $15,000, but then they get a $75,000 line of credit from BCCI London, that they never have to pay back in order to buy this stock. And then like within a year year or two, this stock is suddenly worth several million dollars (laughs) because I mean, the the way they do million. Yeah. Million. Like um, the way they do this is pretty fascinating where uh, uh, on uh, from the carry committee on May uh, 1985, the Capcom board of directors, which includes Bob Magnus and Larry Rumrell, they use a company called Patan Holdings, P-A-T-E-N, to increase the capital base in Capcom uh, by more than double. By increasing the capital base of the firm, Rumrell and Magnus' overall holdings were also increased. Uh, Rumrell, who had, paced, who had placed only 15000 of his own money into the firm, found himself with holdings valued in excess of $2 million. Um, and then they also show this Patan Holdings, P-A-T-E-N Holdings, is a Panamanian company operated out of Geneva, uh, but again, secretly owned by the CEO of Capcom, Akbar. Right. So this company that the fucking CEO of it owns is doubling its capital investment, which them on the board of directors mm-hmm. are voting on and impro- approving, which of course makes their $15,000 stakes work, worth $2 million. Right, right. And a uh, 1987 audit by Arthur Anderson says, in respect of the agency agreements between Capcom Financial and uh, P- uh, uh, Patan Holdings, uh, we confirm that the agreements were entered into at arm's length and that no director or shareholder has an interest in either agent company. Uh, the company and subsidiaries have at no time during the period entered into any agreements that were beneficial to the directors, shadow directors, etc. So it's like this Arthur Anderson audit, which they would later go out of business because they yeah. were the Enron <laughs> auditors. This 1987 audit right. says that, yeah, in regards to this Patan Holdings investment, this is totally arm's length. Nobody yeah. here benefited from it. <laughs> And, you know, they made millions of dollars on this fucking thing. And those millions went to produce Judy Moody, <laughs> a movie no one cares about, and crazy kind of love. Uh, the, the Senate committee says ultimately Rumrell tried to sever his connection to Patan Holdings. Um, according to uh, Cecil Ringenberg, an emergency meeting was called in London uh, by the CEO or by A.R. Khalil. At that meeting, control of Patan passed from Rumrell to Akbar. Because I guess actually Rumrell was for a time running Patan. <laughs> wow. Uh, Rumrell has indicated to the subcommittee that he has never met Cecile uh, Ringenberg, although a Xerox of her calling card was provided to him by the subcommittee. Um, yeah, and so, and so also the subcommittee has uh, messages from Larry Rumrell. Uh, you can look at this report online where they talk about how he knows he was a nominee. Larry Rumrell says, quote, It was my understanding that the majority shareholders were not willing to sign up these guarantees. As far as I personally am concerned, except for my paid up stock and notes, I have acted as a nominee for one or more of the original shareholders. 
that's important because, you know, it is, um, I guess as far as I know, illegal to be on the board of a company acting in the capacity of somebody who's like not actually on the board of that company. You know, like acting... Like a fly-on-the-wall situation. Right. Well, you're... Clearly, you know that you're there as a nominee for someone who does not want their face there, which is, in this case, Saudi intelligence. People are like, Mm -hmm. let's get these American executives to sit on the board of this company and be the fronts for it. Yeah, you can't be a proxy operator on the board for someone else. Right. Speaking of faces, look at this face jewelry Sarah, his Gary's wife, wore at this event. It's like fucking goggles, but it's jewelry, and it's it's like chain mail, essentially. And she looks like a straight psychopath. And I'm not even saying that like, oh, look at this rich lady's jewelry. It's stupid. I'm talking about straight up, like, this person looks like she kills people for a living. <laughs> but so, in 1988, uh, BCCI is indicted, or sorry, BCCI and Capcom are indicted for the first time in Florida for money laundering for the Medellin cartel, conspiracy to drug travel... Uh, to engage in drug trafficking. Right. And according to the Kerry Committee, uh, BCCI and Capcom both launched a full-scale public relations assault following the October 88 indictment. Um, and they say in his January office diary, Larry Rumrell noted, quote, talk to Bob Magnus about CNN report and Capcom wanting to waiting to know the source of the misinformation. TCI, which Magnus is the chairman of, owns 20% of CNN. During the same period, Rumrell also scribbled in his uh, diary, Ramsey Clark, the Lyndon Johnson attorney general, is talking to people in Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C. Drug charges may be lifted against Capcom. So clearly, after these indictments, Bob Magnus and Larry Rumrell are working to squash this investigation. Right. You know, leaning on CNN, getting you know Ramsey Clark to lobby the government in DC mm-hmm. to shut down this investigation. And you know, also according to the Kerry Committee, um, Larry Rumrell had working knowledge of some of the quote-unquote sensitive accounts at Capcom. Uh, they said a 19. 19- 86 agreement where uh, he says, Larry Rumrell says, quote, it was decided to close the account slowly over a matter of days if necessary so as to preclude any market comment concerning unnatural activity at Capcom. Hmm. So it is, this is the general securities account. And so again, this is a massive quote unquote commodities trading operation that is doing, you know, billions of dollars worth of volume in order to disguise various money laundering for Manuel Noriega, among others, you know, just straight up skimming. I think the estimate that came from New York Magazine was skimming about $1.3 billion just out of BCCI into personal accounts for the CEO and others. Um, And so Larry Rumrell, acting on behalf of Bob Magnus, was at least partially aware that something really fucking shady was going on here. But that didn't stop him and Bob Magnus from getting these, you know, never pay it back loans, right. from getting their 15000 turned into several million dollars. Um, so it is just something where they never really had to answer questions about this. Uh, they always just say, uh, you know, if they do say, they say, oh, we got suckered. We got taken yeah, advantage yeah. of. But it's like, how the fuck can you not know something was up right, here? Right. And if you were suckered and taken advantage of, like, why don't you ever give comment to anybody? Why are you pleading the fifth? <laughs> why are you just refusing to answer questions? Because they're wrong and they're crooks. It's obvious, man. Right. And then the last thing I want to just read you from the Carrie Report is uh, 
the Kerry Report, again, 1992, they say the lawyer for Larry Rumrell, the chairman of Capcom, told the subcommittee in the spring of 1992 that his client had not been interviewed nor had his records been subpoenaed by any law enforcement agency. The subcommittee was the first government entity to show interest in Mr. Rumrell's role in the entire Capcom affair. Clearly in the United States, a much greater investigative effort needs to be devoted to Capcom. Well... You would happen to love to know that the Kerry Committee was the first but also the last government agency to ask Bob Magnus or Larry Rumrell about shit about anything that they did here. So it is something where Gary Magnus inherits this $1.4 billion fortune. That is mostly the cable money, but it's also however many million he walked away from on this straight-up criminal scam with Saudi intelligence that... U.S. law enforcement said we're not going to look at, and the reasons why are a mystery to us even to this day, but it might have something to do with the Saudi intelligence CIA connections. Right. This all started out, they just wanted sports jackets. (laughs) (laughs) Sports jackets lead to crazy things, dog. Um, We got a couple more drops to play, and then we can close out here. All right, this is uh, the ad for TCI chairman. Wait, that's not a good setup. What is this? This is a uh, from the Frontline documentary. It has one of the TCC, TCI jingles, but it also talks about the role in the scandal. Both Capcom, SCA Akbar, and the company itself were indicted for drug money laundering. Capcom's central shareholder was Kamal Adam. Saudi intelligence. Its chief. chairman was an American, Larry Rumrell. Rumrell's associate, Robert Magnus, was also a director. This year at TCI, this looks good. No. we're spending over $600 million. The two Americans are also top executives of the world's largest operator of cable television systems, the $4 billion a year Telecommunications Incorporated. Although Capcom was indicted in the Tampa case, the company was never prosecuted. Magnus and Romrell say they were duped into investing in Capcom. Neither man was ever questioned by the Justice Department. So you heard that ad there. It uh, takes place in a hospital, and it's a guy in a hospital bed trying to flip through channels. And, uh, yeah, Capcom's helping him out. What or, a sorry, shitty commercial. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't know how to, they didn't know how to make commercials yet. Idiots. Um, and I guess there's one last drop of uh, 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 Robert Mueller, who was, again, assistant attorney general at the time, being asked. Why not go in? Yeah. Just say- here's... Uh, here's uh, Bob Mueller, who was assistant ter- attorney general at the time, being asked about why he never looked into the uh, uh, Capcom thing. Why not go after the chairman of the board of Capcom, who's a Colorado businessman named Larry Romrell? Well, I'm not going to get into the details of the investigations, but uh, I, I, I did go through uh, how we are want to make cases uh, in cases like this, where you need individuals and documents. Uh, not sound bites, not hearsay, uh, not tidbits of information, but uh, we're prosecutors and investigators. In order to proceed, we need evidence that we can take into court. Capcom remains, to this day, one of the big unanswered mysteries of the BCCI saga. I've yet to receive a convincing explanation. First they think you're crazy, (laughs) then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. But it is something where it's like, again, this is a, you know, 1992 Kerry Committee report is the last word we ever hear on this. Larry Rumrell today works for Liberty Media, which is John C. Malone's company, the billionaire, largest landowner in the United States. 
That's his company. He's a, an executive director of it, executive officer of it. He's never questioned about this except by the Kerry Committee. He was never subpoenaed, never prosecuted. Bob Magnus dies in, I think, 97, mm-hmm. sometime in the late 90s, mid-90s. Um, and, you know, his son, Gary Magnus, inherits the money. Again, his father's never questioned about this, never indicted. Nothing ever really happens. Right. And it's just like... It's frustrating because in your mind you want to make these big connections to this big conspiracy with like Saudi intelligence and and I, I think that's the most convincing explanation. Yeah, seriously. Is the fact that we Lombardi have Lombardi made them connections. I mean like it it's pretty obvious that corrupt things occurred and these billionaires profited from it and some of them lost some money that we don't know about or that haven't been disclosed, but the reality is is that motherfuckers made money from straight murder. And it's it's really obvious that there should have been something that was followed up on through all of the proprietary trading activity that mm-hmm. they used to like it was some of it was just like if it went through the the anti money laundering system nowadays mm-hmm. it would have easily been questioned probably right well it's weird because like Capcom has kicked off the Chicago Exchange and is kicked out of the London Exchange but because these are independent bodies like the Chicago Exchange investigates and is like okay yeah clearly there's money laundering all these other crimes going right. on here. Uh, so they kick them off the exchange, but their authority is limited to, we can kick them off the exchange, yeah, and then once it. they're yep. not on the exchange, we can't investigate them. So there's no investigation. Mm-hmm. The Justice Department never looks at this. The Kerry Committee closes down, I think, in 1994 and says, we don't have the resources to keep going with this. And that's the end of the story. So, you know, I mean, I guess <laughs> we did get the movie Precious out of it. I mean, yeah, Gadabury, Gadabury, Sidibe certainly seemed to have a career out of this whole thing. So, if BCCI produced anything, it is the career of Gadabury Sidibe. The, the movie Precious, almost as depressing as the story of how it was financed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, so Gary Magnus, if if you live in the Colorado area, you might have heard of him. But one point four billion, who inherited that money from his fucking scamster father mm-hmm. uh, and who's also a Ponzi scamster himself who stole 80, 80 million, never gave it back, and his wife sells fucking drinkable collagen for some right. reason. His but, daughter's a pop star. Is a Star's a little much. <laughs> pop comet. Yeah. But so we're, we're going to follow up on the, uh, the premium side. We'll talk a bit more about John C. Malone. Uh, anything we missed on this story, feel free to hit us up. We'll, we'll try to cover it there, talk a bit more about the cable industry in the U.S., uh, TCI. But we did want to say uh, we will be doing some sort of question and answer episode in December. Uh, you know, we've, we really appreciate the feedback from our fans and the, the whole community. So if you got any questions for us, just hit us up either uh, grubstakerspodcast at gmail.com, hit us up uh, Twitter DM, uh, grubstakerspod, uh, or hit us up. Find us on the internet and Patreon. send us some questions. We'll answer anything. And Discord. We yeah, really appreciate Discord. all of you ch- uh, tuning in, listening to us, and spreading the good word. It's been a very, very fun roller coaster, and uh, we're just getting started. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.